Everyone left the stadium at once, and there was a four-lane, a four-lane street from our tailgate area by the stadium to the stadium, blocked off for the game. And when I looked out, it is shoulder to shoulder all the way across, sidewalk to sidewalk, and about a half a block long. So I'm thinking there's a thousand, two thousand people that are half a block from our tailgate, and we're <laughs> we're supposed to be selling beer. You know, we our our plan was we'd sell beer. It was at cost, but we we couldn't afford just to give it away. I, I thought, but I saw that crowd coming. I mean, there's no way we had enough people to sell beer because they you knew they were going to want one. Everyone's going to want one. So uh, President Dennison was standing next to me, and I said, uh, President Dennison, George, would you pay for 25% of our cost if we give the beer free, host it. Sure. I mean, everyone's celebrating. No, no thought it's on of, me. 40,000 beers. No thought of what it was going to cost. I looked to, Wayne Hogan was there, and he was, uh, I said, Wayne, would you do 25% of the cost? I'm going to do 25. George is already in. Wayne said, "You're without a question, yes, yes, yes. And I went to the foundation director, and I said, would you do 25% and that'll fill it out? And, and uh, the foundation director looked in this little horse trough cooler that I, we had about 18 cases of beer cooling in the ice water. He looked at it and looked at it. He said, yeah, I, I can help you at 25%. He was thinking that little bit of beer. I don't know what possessed him to think that that was going to take care of this crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as he said yes... Uh, we had 100% of the cost covered. Afterwards, we figured we were giving away $365 worth of beer per minute. And <laughs> Welcome to Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions podcast series. And we are happy in this episode to welcome the longtime head of the Alumni Association at the University of Montana, Bill Johnston. Bill served at the University of Montana for 36 years, including 28 years as the head of the Alumni Association before retiring in 2016. His chair at the University of Montana was part of the president's cabinet, including, of course, that of George Dennison, who was the president of the university during that 1995 season. Bill Johnston's role at the University of Montana and the duration of his tenure give him a unique perspective on the place of that 1995 season and football team within the scope of the University of Montana at large. But further, Bill is a phenomenal storyteller with a great ability to remember details, to contextualize and add texture to the stories and memories these 25 years ago. It was an absolute blast for Coulter and I to relive the 1995 season through the eyes, ears, and words of Bill Johnston. We anticipate your experience will be the same. Please enjoy this episode of Grizz Greats with the former head of the Alumni Association at UM, Bill Johnston. Bill, thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you, and thanks for the invitation. I look forward to reminiscing about the 1995 and, and championship, but also Grizzly football. It's a great program. Well, we're happy to have you here, but by way of just sort of 
contextualizing you and your role a little bit. You started in 1980 at the University of Montana in admissions. Is that, that is right? Correct. Yes. And then transitioned into the alumni and being ultimately the executive director of the Alumni Association. People know about the Alumni Association, I think have sort of a broad idea of what it is, but what does it mean to be the executive director of that association and what is the goal? What are you working to accomplish in that role? Well, our role, uh, two, two primary roles in the office. One was being the connection between the former students, not all graduates, but former students of the university and the university. So information from the communities back to the university and from the university to the former students. And uh, the other big role in the office was the database. To do that, uh, half our employees had responsibility for keeping addresses, phone numbers, and information up to date. So uh, there's uh, there's about 150,000 names now on the alumni roll that uh, we, when I retired in 16, uh, we were communicating with. So it's a big force. And we worked uh, in tandem with the Grizzly Athletic Association or Grizzly Scholarship Association now because their, our role was with mainly former students and community members. And GSA uh, had, would promote athletics. And so they would have, if alum or not, or if, uh, you know, they, would just, they would do a lot of the same work, but we worked together a lot. So. Uh, but we had, the larger, we had the larger database and large, kind of larger reach. Take us back to Missoula in 1980. <laughs> Probably distinctly different than it is right now. What, what was the town like? I mean, because Missoula's evolved so much both because of the university and because of the sports programs, but also just in the complete dynamic of the town. I mean, it used to be a, a mill town, right? And, oh. and and now it's a completely different vibe. But what was it like in 1980? Well, I came here to Missoula in 1975. I came from Libby. Libby's my hometown to go to school. And at that time, where we're sitting now, on North Reserve was still a big open field. It would remain that for years. And uh, no bridge so uh, on the clock, across the Clark Fork here, so no way of even uh, accessing this area. But it was. The university at the time was uh, oh, 6,000, 6,500 students. It would eventually uh, peak at about 15,000. Had some challenges recently, but they're coming back. They're making the right decisions, so we'll see that again. But... Uh, it was a smaller campus, obviously, and uh, the town was smaller. And, uh, football program in the late six, 60s doing really well and then had a period of time that there were some challenges. So when I came to school here in 1975, the attendance wasn't that great at all the games, but when we moved to the stadium in the Don Reed era, that really changed in 85. Don came before that, but... Don moved us into the stadium in 85. For, for better or for worse, when you're recruiting prospective students, especially in a rural state like Montana, sports is a big deal. It's a big deal. And like you said, I mean, you talk about the Jack's Worth out days in the late 60s, Montana was rolling along pretty good. And then really lean in the 70s. And the Bobcats pretty much dominated everything during the Sunny Holland era, up through then, you know, another national championship in 1984 for the Cats. So when you were out there recruiting prospective students, how much of that was a talking point? Well, it, it uh, for some students, it it was a lot. And for others, it didn't really matter. They didn't know, you know, they knew their high school sports, but they kind of heard about the Grizz Cat, but they didn't know really much about it. But for those that followed, it was huge. And uh, it is a is it is an access point for a lot of people to the university, and they either support or attend because they've heard 
about the Grizzlies. And when we were on the roll and had all the wins in a row, the, I believe it was 16 in a row. You guys can Oh, yeah, the streak, me. 16, yeah. yep. <laughs> uh, I like to tell the story, and our, our son, Eric, will, will probably be upset with me, but he was headed down to <laughs> Bozeman to watch the game, the Grizz Cat game with uh, Dory, uh, my wife, his mom. And he was all nervous. And I said, Eric, uh, you know, the sun comes up in the east every morning anyway. I mean, if we lose, we lose, but we want to win. I mean, this is big. And and uh, Eric said, well, as long as he's been alive, he's never lost to the, the Bobcats. So it was <laughs> right. a big deal to him. And it put, me, it put it into perspective that after 16 in a row, I mean, that was – and we're getting, of course, grief from our friends across the state that – well, they've won several in a row. I said, well, when you get close to 16, let us know. We don't, we don't intend to let it go any longer than it has. It's been too long already. But um, Bill, Coulter and I have talked about this all the time. And obviously, we're here on, you know, on ESPN Radio, and we're on the air and doing sports podcasts and so on. But there is this question uh, broadly about the influence of sports and, and, and athletics on the greater university and the greater university uh, um, sort of vision and goals and in your chair when you're the executive director of the alumni association as you said it encompassed all of the university and all of the all of the alumni and prospective students potentially when you were in admissions and so on and so forth and there's been a lot of discussion like athletics is an expensive thing to have and especially right now okay well where do we want to spend money where do we not want to spend money and so on and so forth how, how important a role is athletics, and particularly at a place like the University of Montana football, to the larger missions of the university and also to the attraction and the enrollment numbers directly? Because I think sometimes those are, those are sort of hard uh, uh, lines to, to, to paint definitively, but you would be in as good a position as any to, to be able to sort of see and assess that at some level. Well, and, I, and I'll read. I'll say again, I'm retired, so this is just purely sure. my personal um, observations. And uh, I think two things, when you're framing your question, the two things I was thinking about was, uh, as we did tailgate parties for the university in the football program, and we did in basketball too, men and women's, uh, people would travel hundreds and thousands, actually thousands of miles. So if we were in Portland, Oregon, people would drive up from Nevada or fly in from Colorado to watch the football game, Portland State, or they'd watch the, uh, you know, they'd come from uh, Northern California come and drive up. You don't see them traveling like that for other programs. If we, you know, if you say, well, we, we have a program we'd love you to come to and 40 miles would be a great distance for a lot of our programming uh, to, to visit with us or, or other people. But for athletics, they do travel. But the other thing, too, is by example. Uh, there are people that don't know sports and don't really interact or it doesn't make a big decision, uh, influence uh, for their college selection. But when they see photos of a packed stadium and everyone going crazy and, and how much pride people have and how connected they are to the campus – it, it, it may not be for them, but they see how it is for other people, and they say, that must be a great place. I mean, they, these, these many people are traveling. They're getting crazy. Their, their faces are painted. And they're having a great time. It's not for me, but it, it, must, it must be a great campus because it's – so it has that influence, and it's not maybe a one-to-one type of – it's not a recruiting tool for a lot of people, but it is an example that, hey, this must be a great place. 
before there's so many key moments that happened that led to the rise of the Grizzlies and then culminated in that 1995 national championship, which they laid the foundation for quite frankly, unprecedented success for the university of Montana football program. But one of the pivotal moments was the, the opening of Washington Grizzly stadium in 1985, but take us back before that. What were games like at Doran blazer field? Probably completely and utterly different experience than what we get. I mean, we would never miss the run out of the tunnel for anything right uh, now at Washington yeah. Grizz now. I and mean, you're talking 26,000 people going nuts, but Doran Blazer Field probably a distinctly different experience. Doran Blazer was different. My first football game, I hadn't really even thought about going to the football game, but uh, my roommate, Jim O'Day, was a big sports fan and ended up eventually. Does Jim O'Day like sports? Oh, <laughs> yes. Jimmy likes, Jimmy likes I guess, sports. Okay, that's so, good to know. I, yeah. I, I had an inkling that maybe he did a little bit, but now you, we've confirmed it from an inside source, so well, that's we good. We roomed uh, together for a number of years, and people say, how the two of you ever get along? And I won't tell you what. Uh, the activity mostly was at a bar that we had in common. But, but uh, yeah, Jim Jim was obviously big in sports and was our athletic director, and I was also the alumni director. So we had a, a great time. But when I went to that first game, the the you could see the bleachers sway back and forth from north to south, north to south, as the fans were moving, and that's how dilapidated the infrastructure was. Mm. Uh, to make it look better, they'd stain it with green paint. Uh, green stain and so if you went downtown after the football game people knew you went because your your pants were all covered with green stain and you know it was and it was not a lot of people the only games uh, homecoming wasn't selling out then uh, the only game would be every every other year would be the the grizz cat and um, win or lose mostly lose we uh, everybody would go to those games Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, is sponsored by First Security Bank and Coulter. While First Security has long been a supporter of the University of Montana and UM Athletics, people might be surprised to know how much First Security Bank, in fact, influenced the University of Montana program and the path they were on directly. Back in 1993, the Grizz were on their way to their second ever berth in the Division I AA playoffs. Previously, in 1989, the only other time Montana had made it to the Division I AA playoffs. And at that time, first round home games awarded via a bidding process. And so to help support the Grizz football team, as well as fortify the faith throughout the community of Missoula, Bill Boucher, former president of First Security Bank, stepped up to the table to help the University of Montana guarantee any potential revenue lost for the first round of the playoffs. And of course, that was recouped in a big way as the University of Montana in 1993 then started the first of 17 straight playoff berths. And in 1995, that local optimism was turned into national prominence as Montana made a run all the way to the 1995 National Championship. First Security Bank is proud to sponsor Grizz Greats and this 25-part podcast series commemorating the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions for Security Bank a proud supporter of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. So you move into, the football team moves into Washington Grizzly Stadium in 1985. You take over the executive director position uh, of the Alumni Association in 88. And at that time, there's this uh, build that happens with the football team. And it, it, it is a little, there's a couple little ups and downs but the trajectory is very good the entire way well don reed is there and then you get to 
this guy named Dave Dickinson, who all of a sudden takes takes this thing with a with a bunch of other great players, of course, to a, to a whole nother level for his whole career, culminating in 1995. What was there a parallel that you saw between that Don Reed era and that 95 season and the rest of the university at large and, and your seat as, as the, the ED of the Alumni Association? Well, I think any window into the university is very helpful. And uh, in recruiting, they used uh, Dave a lot, you know, the legend of the fall. The legend of the fall. Was the legend of the, the fall. The legend of the fall, yeah, that's yeah. right. I remember how uh, they promoted, and Dave was a pre-med student, excellent student, um, just all-around great person. And to use his uh, use Dave as an example uh, of what uh, we like to recruit and, and showcase as students it was excellent. And yeah, when that stadium opened, uh, I remember distinctly looking at it, going, "We're never going to fill this." I mean, if if we use the example of uh, Dornblazer and then looked at the new stadium, the seating was about the same, but we weren't really feeling darn blazer, but it was, Grizzly Stadium was so nice. Uh, and then it had grass end zones. You know, people could take blankets and sit in the end zones and, mm-hmm. and slide down because it was slippery when it was... Yeah, right, and have the there. mosh pit with every extra point and field goal, <laughs> the kids diving over each other trying yeah. to get that thing. I remember catching a, 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 a ball or two, which I was very happy about. Well, and I was asked to help uh, recruit uh, people to go into the stadium boxes, and I first saw what they were going to charge for that. I thought, how are you going to get people to pay this kind of money to sit inside a box for football? And now we sit inside of a box and. It'd be nice if we didn't have if we could pay what we paid in eighty five. Right? Yeah it, uh, it 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 just changed the dynamics of campus. And uh, I tell the story a lot that as a recruiter for the university, but also as the alumni director, one of our biggest challenges was to get people across the sidewalk onto campus because they did they felt intimidated. They didn't know where to park. They didn't want to look lost in front of students. Uh, they weren't sure where the building was. And they just wouldn't, they wouldn't come. Now they'd come for a concert or a, a play or a production. But at that time, we had basketball, but we didn't have football on campus until 85. But when people came to tailgate and they parked in parking lots where they could and had to walk across campus to get to the stadium or just uh, spent a lot of time around the stadium, they, it just changed the dynamics of campus. And it, it became a focal point for a lot of people. And, and again, we talked a lot about windows of uh, access so what what appeals to some doesn't appeal to all but when you fill that stadium with twenty six thousand screaming fans minus the potents fans not very many but uh, it it made a difference for campus do you think dave dickinson was the tipping point or was there a tipping point when you realized that that missoula was fully into Grizz hysteria. Well, I, I think Dave had a lot to do with that. Don Reed had a lot to do with yeah. that. Tim Houck probably. Tim Houck. Yep. Uh, just, you know, number 37. And mm-hmm. just just the quality of play and the quality of players, not to take anything away from anyone that played before. Uh, uh, it just, it was a different time, and you could feel that momentum building on each other. You know, the coaching staff, uh, the players, the, the fan base, the, the donors. And everyone was, they were focused. And it's a great example of when you have that energy come together, that it's the right time, the right people, the right place, and you can get a lot done. 
Uh, Dave would go out and, and help recruit attendants. Don Reed had a great presence out in the community, encouraging people to, to show. Uh, the passing game was exciting, and uh, I know nothing about strategy, and I, I go to the game mostly to see people and, and enjoy the afternoon. I can't tell you much about the strategy, but uh, the passing game was exciting, and the, the crowds were there. And pretty soon, rather than saying, well, we can get married on this weekend because there's a Grizzly home game, people <laughs> are saying, I'm getting married in a year. What's the schedule? Because I can't have it on a Grizzly home game. No one will come. Right. And, and that happened in some ways very slowly, but in other ways very quickly. Mm-hmm. It was like night and day. It was like it all of a sudden, that schedule, homecoming, they wanted to know home. We had started booking hotels for homecoming three years in advance because it, it just everyone wanted to be in Missoula at a home game. And homecoming every year and Grizzcat every other year were those anchors. It's interesting, right? Guess that the uh, the styles that they played on both sides of the ball, the style that Jerome Sowers had his defense play in is by and large the the Grizz have played the same style defensively, at least in terms of run of the ball, party on the pile, everybody's celebrating in front of the home crowd for 35 years, but they've been haunted by the innovations of Don Reed's <laughs> offense forever because because Don Reed threw the ball at every play. Now, ever since then, everybody's like, well, why don't we just throw the ball like we used to? Because yeah. <laughs> Joe Glenn wasn't trying to throw the ball. Bobby Houck's not trying to right. throw the ball. Bob Stitt tried to do it, but he wasn't Don Reed. Didn't it's work. Just, it's yeah. interesting how that they've been sort of haunted by uh, the excitement of the past. Yeah, it is true. I mean, the the last couple years, the the second iteration of Bobby Ball, I think, offensively, have been tremendously exciting for Grizz fans and a ton of fun. Whether that has been catering to the personnel that were inherited, and then that, and right. that's what you should do. I mean, if you're not throwing the ball when you got. Sammy Kim and Samari Tori, you probably need to go look for a new job. Yeah, so right. you get you got that part of it. But uh, you're right; it is it is it is pretty interesting that Don Reed, who was on the front end, not even on the front end, who was alone in his time in an innovative sense in that regard, uh, made made a game that had otherwise been you know twelve to six as a final score, and now they're racking up 30, 40, 50, 70 points in a football game. Uh, Anybody could get behind that, right, Bill? Yeah, that was, it was an exciting time. And you make a great point about the defense. I mean, the, we, the defense has come through so many times to, to finalize a game and keep us in the season. And so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting time. It's been a lot of fun. When, uh, when Gene Carlson was the head coach and Larry Donovan the head coach, varying different strategies, and a lot of it was to – you know, keep up with the Joneses that were in the league at that exact time. Got schools like Idaho, Nevada, um, Boise State, but also keep up with the Bobcats as well. Uh, but I think that the one thing that has always held true for both programs is just the recruiting of Montana kids. And I think Don Reed really got back to that, particularly defensively. He said, "We're going to run the offense." You know, McDaniel and I are going to be running the offense. Jerome Sowers, you guys, Craig Pulse, you guys go recruit hard-nosed, tough Montana guys. When you're recruiting students or when you're cultivating alumni donations, things like that, is it a selling point when you say, hey, most of these guys that we're watching or most of the guys that are representing this school are from Montana? Oh, uh, definitely. Definitely. And uh, I remember um, the newspaper, uh, national newspaper, had an article about people coming from Sydney all the way out to watch every home game and, right. and talked about the distance of you know, that's basically Chicago to D.C. Uh, and they'd, they'd leave on Friday, sometimes Thursday night, and be here for the game and 
and enjoy themselves and then have to make that long trek back on Sunday. And yeah, it, uh, Montana kids, uh, it's, it's a big deal. And they say, if you went to school at UM or MSU, you're obviously, you're, you're a Grizz or you're a cat, but you got to pick a side in the state. If you didn't go to either school, you, you have to identify. And we, uh, used to make a big deal when I was in recruiting, when we started making that switch where we became larger, that, uh, how many grads left the, the high school and how many went to UM and how many went to MSU. And we made great uh, strides in being very competitive and then ahead during that period. Now it's also a pendulum. It's back going the other way. But it, it'll change again. And But it's a big deal. It's If they want to see, be able to see themselves, am I going to enjoy that campus? Is there something to do? And, and, and for spo- especially, I think, for small-town kids in Montana, it, it's something they understand. You know, it's you're going to college, you're living in a dorm, you're meeting people from all over the world, and, and it's going to be a lot of work, and you're nervous, and, and you understand homecoming, you understand football, you understand basketball, and watching a game, and that gives you some of that foundation that, you know, there's something that's normal for you, you know that. So it plays a big part, very big part. At Blackfoot Communications, we're experts at keeping your business technology up and running. From networks and security to communications and 24-7 support, our team works with you to understand your technology concerns, then deploys the right solution for your unique needs. Whether your company is just starting out or is looking to take that next step, Blackfoot is here to help. For more information, visit grizzgrades.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more. Bill, I want to just dial in to the actual 1995 season and that championship game and and perhaps also the return to Missoula of the team and what transpired. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so, good. Oh, my gosh is a good start because that means there's some stories coming. But what what stood out to you, uh, you know, about that season and what do you remember about about that game and the, the, the 48 hours or, you know, however, 72 hours after that game in the city of Missoula and, and, and what that meant for, for your role? Well, I'll rely on you guys uh, looking at me and saying, no, that's not right, Bill, because I have a memory and it may not be that accurate. But I remember from that season, we it, I don't think it was the first away game. Maybe it was. We went to WSU and, and we lost. Mm-hmm. It was a good game. A really good game, yeah. Very good game. And we realized that, hey, this team has something going. It's it, uh, you, you hate to lose, but that was a good WSU team and we played very tough and I remember we lost one conference game that year and that was against Idaho and my colleague from Idaho after the championship called wanted to know when he could pick up the trophy because since they beat us and they were conference that they actually were the national champs and not the Grizzlies (laughs) (laughs) but Vandal would say of course (laughs) but then the the runoff uh, you know the playoffs the run to the the final game we so the whole season was you know there was some plays that you made them, but if you hadn't, we wouldn't have been in the position. But that, that's the game itself. You know, there's all those things, the injuries, whether you have them or not. But uh, the playoffs, uh, being in Grizzly Stadium and uh, Eastern or Western Kentucky? Eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky uh, came out. And I think, uh, was it a, I don't think they scored against No, they, zero points. The, Grizzlies, the yeah. Grizzlies shut out their first two opponents, in right. fact. And then only won by 56 in the game. They allowed <laughs> 14 points in the semi in the semifinal. Exactly. Well, and, uh, so 
I had gone to the playoff game in uh, Georgia, in Statesboro, and they that um, they really took it to us down there, and they they weren't very welcoming to the Montana Grizz. Yeah, that was '89, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep, when Georgia Southern was, was fearless, yeah. yes, unbeatable, and. Uh, I just remember going to the pregame with the or the uh, player dinner with the other team, and you know they just made fun of Montanans and and it wasn't very fun. And then it rained at the game, and it was supposed you know we're in Georgia. We thought well we'd be all right. It froze our butts off because mm. it was cold and sleet, rain and sleet. And anyway, so Georgia Southern coming back t- to Missoula, and we held them scoreless was great and then Stephen F. Austin I remember how cold that game was and uh, the alumni director from Stephen F. Austin said uh, came to my office bundled up I couldn't even recognize him and he said uh, a lot of my colleagues call me Billy he said Billy we know what your secret is to keep your feet warm during the game and I said the players I said well really what's the secret he said you put your feet in the bread liners (laughs) <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know who told you that, but I'm Bob, his name is Bob. Bobby, you, uh, that isn't what we do. And you don't want to do that because your feet will sweat. And then that water, it'll freeze. You don't want to do that. Oh, no, he said, we know that's the trick. Well, I, I think it got down to 30 or 40 below zero feet uh, wind chill. I think the game started <laughs> at just above zero. And they were miserable. Oh, they yeah. took them all out of the bread, bread sacks. But after the game, I asked Bob, how he was doing because they're on the bus trying to head back to Texas, and he's like, "Oh, he said I've never been so cold in my life." And I said, "Well, that's you know, you guys have humidity and and uh, extreme heat, and we have to play in that, and that's just as hard for us. And it's not easy for our players to be playing those conditions. I mean, you don't, you, there's no." give on any of that it reminds me of cool runnings the great cinematic feature and john candy with the jamaican bobsled team gets off the plane in calgary and they walk outside and he's like well it's not so much the heat as the humidity that'll get you they're in just a blizzard and these guys got every piece of clothing that they even brought with them on their backs That's trying to stay analogy. warm so yeah i i uh i recognize it because of my love of film yes there you go well, we, uh, so we played the game, we won, and we have no idea. We've gotten a call as one of four in the semifinals. If, if you, when you win, or if you win, uh, here's, you know, we're going to call you Sunday morning, and here's what you need to do, your office as alumni. So, of course, the NCAA has this well-organized, and so we, we win, and I, I always would carry a, a paper, a note, little notebook, and because I would write things down because people are back and forth. you got to remember all this stuff, so I'd write it down. So I spent most of the postgame writing down names of people that said, I don't care what it costs, I don't care what I have to do, I need to be at the championship, so I need a team or a ticket, and I need to get there. So when you guys figure this out, you let me know. So I had a whole list of people that this is um, – but ten. This is two weeks before Christmas, and it's you know not a time that people are willing to spend a lot of money. But they were mm-hmm. they didn't care what the cost was. So we met Sunday morning. So we won. We know we're, we know we're going. We don't know really what we need to do because that call with the NCAA people was going to be later that day. But we met on campus as administrators. Okay, who's going to do what? Who needs to do when? And uh, so for our part. Uh, we were asked to get a fan jet to go 
back to uh, West Virginia. And, and, they, and I already knew it was going to be a $40,000 deposit, non-refundable. I didn't know if we could fill it. I, we had no experience with this. Because this was like uncharted territory. Right? Oh, yeah. This is sort of commonplace now because the fervor has grown so much. But th- this had never really happened. Right? It, it never happened. Uh, uh, well, in the 60, late 60s, early 70s, they had some uh, playoff games in California. But it was a totally different environment now. And up to that point, we had fans go on the team jet. But not a lot. There wasn't a lot of room. But they, some got to go. And the rest were on their own to get there. Well, to get from Missoula to Huntington, West Virginia in five days, either you start driving on Sunday <laughs> in the middle right. of winter, or um, you had to find some type of transportation arranged by the university or other travel agencies. So that morning, uh, the president, uh, Wayne Hogan was the athletic director, the president was George Dennison, Phyllis uh, uh, Boucher was in uh, my office working with us, and she was in charge of the, some of the outreach and the tailgates. And, and Kelly Elder was our associate director. So we all met, still no idea what we needed to do. And they said, we need a, we need a, a, a plane to get them back, at least one plane. And the alumni office is the best one to coordinate it, so you'll do it. I said, well, that's $40,000. I, I, my budget, I don't have $40,000 on a, I, what if we don't fill it? And I can't afford that. And and I said, well, you need to make a decision. You've got to do it. So Bill Boucher happened to be there. Bill was uh, a CEO of the First Security Bank, where I work now, and where Andy Larson, by the mm-hmm, way, mm-hmm, works mm-hmm. as well, a big player in all this. Uh, Bill said, uh, I'll guarantee the money. And I said, Bill, that's, you don't have to. No, I'll do it. So on a handshake, Bill guaranteed that we wouldn't lose the money, and afterwards, I said, Bill, I don't know if I can pay you back. And he said, all I want is uh, some tickets. And I thought to myself, oh, geez, those are kind of expensive, but I guess that's the price I have to pay because tickets on the jet. And, and I said, well, I'll have to get a check to you to pay you for those or, or uh, you know, because someone has to pay for the tickets. And he goes, oh, no, I said, I'm paying for them. I just want access to six tickets because he wanted to be on it and he had some friends he wanted on it. He said, I'm not... You don't have to pay my way. I'm, pay, you know, we're paying for them. I just want access to them. So with that, we called in and uh, reserved a plane. Uh, I, I'm going to say 110 passenger plane, and it was full. I mean, we filled it immediately. And I, I may exaggerate this, but I, it was like nine or eleven jets flew out to West Virginia that year, and uh, the following year, I think it was 14. But we we loaded up and loaded them on. They flew out and. The, the jets just kept arriving in West Virginia, arriving and arriving. And, and people, that's a wave after wave after wave. But a jet would land, they'd bus them to the hotel, the, the headquarters, and so all of a sudden there'd be 80 people or 100 people walking into the party. And then it, it'd kind of get back to normal, and then another wave of people would walk in. And <laughs> it, was, uh, it was about 2.33 in the morning, and I was getting really nervous because we're used to 2 o'clock closing time, and... So I, I, it was our, we organized the party at the hotel on uh, Friday night for the game. And I asked the, my contact, the owner of the hotel and the bar, I said, you know, are we in trouble? I mean, this is, we're, you're supposed to close. And he said, Bill, see that tall guy, slender guy standing up against the wall? And I said, yeah. He said, that's our sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> he said, as long as you guys stay in the room and behave yourselves, 
we can keep going because it's only midnight for us. Right. You know, from Montana. Yeah, right, right, right. And then they've flown all the way out and they're ready to get together and visit and socialize. So it, uh, yeah, I, I probably said too much. That's the there. first time I've heard the word visit used in that context. <laughs> yes, indeed. Visiting is certainly what they were up to. No question. Oh. Coulter, in 1993, the Grizz football team was looking to host its first playoff game of the decade and just its second season of playoffs in school history. As we know, you got to have some financial backing to guarantee a home game. And former First Security Bank president Bill Boucher stepped up, spearheading a group of local business owners to guarantee that bid for UM Athletics. And that commitment from First Security Bank to UM has never wavered. Bill Boucher, Gordy Fix. Several other business owners around the city of Missoula certainly had a huge influence in stepping up. Certainly some of the first true believers in what Grizz football could become and what they could mean to the Missoula community. Two years later, in 1995, the University of Montana had turned that local optimism into national prominence. The Grizz won the Division I AA National Championship, the first national title in the history of the university. And 25 years later, First Security Bank is still proud to sponsor the Grizzlies. For Security Bank, a presenting sponsor for Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series remembering that epic 1995 season. For Security Bank, proud sponsor of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. I think one detail that gets glossed over until you watch the game, we watched the replay of the game, people sort of forget that Marshall University is in Huntington, West Virginia. This is at Marshall's home stadium. It just happened to be the neutral site that hosted the deal, except for then Marshall got to play at their home field two years in a row. Washington Grizzly Stadium right now holds 26,500 people. That stadium holds almost 35,000 people. I think it's like 32, yeah. You guys brought thousands of Grizz fans, but there's still 30,000 Marshall fans that are ready to roll. What was the experience like just before the game, the tailgates, and and just, I mean, were were the Marshall people welcoming, or were they hostile? What was that experience like? Well, it it, it was a good rivalry, of course, an instant rivalry. So, I mean, they fully planned to win. The the booster uh, group in Huntington had built the stadium, and they wanted a championship game, and, they did, and they'd love to have their own team there. But, it, I mean, this was an economic development for their community, uh, bringing people in for this championship game, whoever played. The fact that they got it for two years in a row was a bonus. And uh, From the moment we got there, it was a different experience going there than it was at uh, Statesboro with Georgia Southern. Everyone was welcoming. Everyone was... Uh, hey, it's good, great to have you here. Of course, they thought they were going to win. Mm-hmm. And when who wouldn't with uh, all the pressure? <laughs> right. Yeah, our first trip to national championship, uh, being across country. And then they would see more and more Montanans showing up. I mean, cars with Montana plates were showing up. And they, you drove all the way across. We, yeah, we left on Sunday. We wanted to get here. So it, uh, they, we were treated very, very well. Now, we, there was some activity in town that uh, university officials and and boosters went to because it was part of their package, and it'd be it'd be a rivalry. It would be uh, back and forth, but it was never malicious or uh, mean spirited. It was all very welcoming, and uh, so when we did the tailgate, we they said they'd have plenty of toilets for the Montana fans, and so I learned a lesson. You always ask what that means for them, because there weren't enough toilet porta potties in our area. So our fans got to know a lot of fans from West Virginia because we were using every toilet, porta potty, and every tailgate because there was no way our fans were going to be able to use just the four that 
they supply it. But they had no idea that we'd had that many people coming back. The Grizzlies win the football game. Andy Larson kicks the game winner. Throw that 39 in 39 seconds left, was it? Something like that. And uh, you get on the planes and you fly back to Missoula. And then more visiting happens uh, for the next couple of days. What uh, what do you remember about that, about coming back to Missoula? Very tired. I mean, people forget now, a, a guy like yourself, certainly it was fun, great memory, enjoyable, all that. Also, you're working. I mean, yeah. you're, you're, you've got a bunch of logistics that you're trying to figure out. You're worried that all 2,500 of your fan base is going to prison for staying out <laughs> after hours. You, gotta, you know, this is like a, a, a lot on your plate. And so certainly – exuberant and exhausting so what what was your experience like coming back well uh, so coming back started the game's over we won the team stayed on the field to celebrate the fans stayed on the field to celebrate there's eight of us that left to go get the post game started because we had the pre-game and post-game celebration and win or lose we were having a celebration because we were proud of the grizzlies winning was over the top. I mean, we were so excited, but we had things that had to be done. So, is this back at the hotel? This at, is at out the... at, This is a block from the stadium. Okay, just right down. This is an outside tailgate party where we met pregame, uh, the day of the game, and all walked over to the game. Now everyone's staying on the field with the team because they're celebrating, and just a few of us walked back to get everything ready. So, our office, our staff, our team is ready to go. And I look back to this towards the stadium. And the team had left to go to the locker room. When that they left, everyone left the stadium at once. And there was a four-lane a four-lane street from our tailgate area by the stadium to the stadium, blocked off for the game. And when I looked out, it is shoulder to shoulder, all the way across, sidewalk to sidewalk, and about a half a block long. So I'm thinking there's a thousand, two thousand people that are half a block from our tailgate and we're, we're supposed to be selling beer. You know, we, our, our plan was we'd sell beer. It was at cost, but we, we couldn't afford just to give it away. I, I thought, but I saw that crowd coming. I mean, there was no way we had enough people to sell beer because they, you knew they were going to want one. Everyone's going to want one. So, uh, president Dennison was standing next to me and I said, uh, president Dennison, George, would you pay for 25% of our cost if we give the beer free host it? Sure. I mean, everyone's celebrating. No, no thought. It's on of, me. 40,000 beers. No thought of what it was going to cost. I looked to Wayne Hogan was there. And he was, uh, I said, Wayne, would you do 25% of the cost? Uh, I'm going to do 25. George is already in. Wayne said, You're, without a question, yes, yes, yes. And I went to the foundation director and I said, would you do 25% and that'll fill it out. And, and uh, the foundation director looked in this little horse trough cooler that we had about 18 cases of beer cooling in the ice water. He looked at it and looked at it. He said, yeah, I, I can help you with 25%. He was thinking that little bit of beer. I don't know what possessed him to think that that was going to take care of this crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so as soon as he said yes, uh, we had 100% of the cost covered. And we had already made arrangements with Earl Sharon. Uh, who called his colleague at West Virginia, and we had a refrigerated truck full of cold packs. And it was sitting there, and if we opened them, we bought them. If we never took them out of the truck and damaged them anyway, then they'd just take them back and no charge. And so as soon as we had the 100% covered, 
I yelled to the guy, our beer runner, I said, uh, that's it, uh, we're, we're giving the beer away. And I said, open up your, your uh, truck door, roller, and we'll use that because there's no way we can get all this beer out from our three distribution points, you know, that was five people at a time when we started. And so the guy flows, throws up the truck uh, d- door in the trailer, and we start throwing cold packs into the audience. <laughs> and people were catching them and then distributing them to their friends. Afterwards, we figured we were giving away $365 worth of beer per minute. And, <laughs> and honestly, that was the best money. And there are people that I know don't, didn't drink. And I, yeah. one lady in particular, and I saw her walking by with a beer. I said, you don't even drink. She said, I just had to hold on to it to celebrate. And she said, no, I don't drink, but I'm just so excited. <laughs> just carrying just it carrying around. I yeah. want to be a part of the beer. Well, uh, love it. So eventually, now to get to the departure, we, uh, a lot of the, everyone on the charter flight, so only one, there's a team plane from the university and then the fan official alumni And the rest were all charters from different agencies and people that put them together. And so they all knew their departure time. Most of them were like an hour after the game is over or two hours after the game is over. You have to be at the bus. We're leaving. And if you're not on, you know. So we had people tailing off going to the airport. But the, the, and the alumni jet was leaving, but I wasn't on it. I was on the team plane. So I stayed with, with the university officials and the coaches and the players. But it took the players a while to get to the post game, right? Because they they have uh, mandatory drug testing. They all have to wait for. Only a few people are randomly selected, and then uh, you know there's other things they have to do with the officials. So we did uh, we did have a post game with Don Reed very briefly in the state in the post game there, and had the trophy. I mean that was so so exciting to see the trophy, and then we made our way to the airport. And it looked like an evacuation of uh, Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, remember that the Marshall team had the, the famous accident right. That, right. You know, that happened at that airport. Mm. And it had been, that was in 70. 70, I think. 70 or 71, somewhere in there. Because yeah. it was just like, you know, it wasn't the exact anniversary, but it was like 20, 25 years then mm-hmm. of, of when it happened. So we had heard about that. And so it's a little ominous that you're, you know, the celebrating and, and thinking of that history. But it's up on the ridge of a mountain, and it's the strangest place to have. It, I mean, you climb this hill to get to the mountain or to the airport, but then they have floodlights everywhere because they're not used to this many people leaving at once. And you have all these jets parked on the tarmac and people getting off buses, and they're trying to be led to the right plane, but oh, there's Sally, or there's George, and people, <laughs> and then like, where's my plane? It's like, it's like a rental car in a shopping mall. You park it, and then you can't remember which one's yours. You know, these people are wandering everywhere, and we finally, and then it was foggy, so there's this image I have of this kind of fuzzy, uh, flood-lit runways of jets loading, taking off, taking off, taking off. So finally, the, we did get some priority. Uh, the, the alumni plane had already left, and the team plane got to go out. And so we take off, and I, people have asked me, that must have been one heck of a party on that plane back. And I said, no, it was so quiet. <laughs> Everyone was exhausted, but more importantly, 
all the players are students and it's finals week the oh, next man. week and no one gave them a pass on taking tests there were some people taking tests on the plane there are people studying on the plane and then people sleeping and it was very quiet hmm. even even the in the front end our administrators and some donors or that bought seats things on the the extra seats on the jet Everyone knew that we were quiet. I mean, none of us were high-fiving. Fi, uh, I mean, getting on and getting excited. Once we're in the air, it was, it was absolutely quiet. And it, it, now the alumni jet was a little different. They, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, a side story on that is I signed a contract, said the, the drinks are at cost. I mean, we're not hosting. They bought a ticket to sit on the plane, but they're buying their own alcohol because that we – we priced it as low as we could, and we didn't include the beverage. And so two weeks after the game's over, I get a call from the charter company, and they said I owed them thousands of dollars for the drinks. And I said, no, I don't. I said, I, it's in the contract. It's, it's not hosted. It's no host. Well, our team didn't, our flight crew didn't understand that, so we were asking you to pay. And I said, well... I'm sorry, that's not my fault. I don't have that money, so you're just going to have to eat it. <laughs> but they drank every, the alumni plane drank every bit of alcohol they had. On the airplane. The there. So they were a little different when they arrived. That's there. the least surprising <laughs> thing I've heard in, the, in this no entire question. narrative. Yeah. So we're circling uh, Missoula. We fly in. We can see Missoula. We see Frenchtown. We, we go towards Frenchtown and turn around and come back in. And then that's when you could see the crowds. Yeah. And we had heard before leaving that, you know, there was a big effort, and we knew that they were going to try and get people, win or lose, to come out and celebrate the team's arrival. But no one thought there would be that many. I mean, it's just a sea of cars and people. We land, and we we were in a taped-off area where we could all walk, and I got to join the platform party with the coaches and the administrators. And, and uh, because you guys know Eric, my son, uh, I hear Bill, Bill, and I turn around, and I'm hard of hearing. I turn around, and uh, there's no reason I should have heard it, but I see Dory holding Eric, and she puts him down. And he runs out, so he's eight years old, and joins me. And so I got to take him up on the stage, and we got to experience that together, watching all these people. But it was an incredible crowd, and Dory told me that leaving Missoula, getting to the airport, and with hardly any organization, time to organize, they did a great job. You know, there's places to park. People are selling hot chocolate. And there were thousands of people out there. Mm. And it was so exciting. The, just the energy in the, in the air. Yeah, get up there and Don Reed holding the championship trophy and people cheering and Dave Dickinson and, you know, and all the, all the coaches being recognized, all the players being recognized. It was, it was quite, quite the deal. Get in the bus, head back into town on the way out to the airport in Missoula, on the way home to campus, uh, every intersection blocked, people out of their cars jumping up and down, both you know cheering us on the way out and welcoming the players back. And it, yeah, I, I think the bars may have just still been open when we were coming through town. <laughs> if, maybe it was after two though, I'm not sure. <laughs> it was busy. At Blackfoot Communications, we're experts at keeping your business technology up and running. From networks and security to communications and 24-7 support, our team works with you to understand your technology concerns, then deploys the right solution for your unique needs. Whether your company is just starting out or is looking to take that next step, 
Blackfoot is here to help. For more information, visit grizzgreats.com or call 866-541-5000. Blackfoot, connect to more. Well, Bill, uh, these are these are amazing stories. And, ahead, and I want to ask you just a, two more things. So from that moment forward, Montana was then considered a juggernaut. And we saw the Grizzlies have unprecedented success. Seven national championship game appearances in, in over the next 14 years. Win another national championship in 2001. Never didn't win the Big Sky Conference Championship. Literally won the Big Sky Conference Championship every single year from 1993 all the way until 2009. Made the playoffs every single year. But that moment, it was sort of the breakthrough because I think the people forget the dynamic. Montana went from David to Goliath, but Montana was David, not Goliath, at that moment. Mm-hmm. So, Bill, you were at University of Montana for the then the, the subsequent rise after that. But is there an element of, of that championship just being special since it was the first one? I mean, it seemed to me that in 2001 it was almost like, an affirmation of the greatness of the program. We should be doing this. We deserve to be national champions. Seems totally different in 1995. Well, yes, because uh, prior to Georgia Southern, we had gone to Youngstown State. Right, and when Jim Trussell was there. Yeah, yeah and, and they had won a four out of five or something. And that was a, a tough game. that We looked out. I sat with Larry Ganchetta, our dean of uh, business school at the time, business college now, but... We, we made the comment on all four corners of the stadium, the flags, the weather, the wind flags were going different directions. <laughs> I, every one. I mean, it was, if there was a, uh, the wind in that stadium was unbelievable and just impossible to play in if you're not used to it. And so we've gone from Youngstown, then we went to Georgia. And, you know, and then to, to, be, to have it validated for the, for the players, the student athletes, uh, the coaches that all worked so hard for everyone that worked up to that point because you build each year even if you're not having a winning season there's you're moving it all forward you have to you just doesn't happen on its own it don't flip a switch and say you're now here so generations of students uh, student players generations of coaches administrators all got to that point in 95 and so it was magical because it was you're here and and then to look back after all the years of the, the success and continued success, uh, and people say, well, oh, Montana. Yeah, wow, yeah, mm-hmm. wow. And, and then having people tune in on the Appalachian State game was on TV, and uh, my phone, my cell phone was ringing off the hook. Uh, hey, Johnston, we're watching the game, and is that snow really coming down sideways? <laughs> <laughs> I said, are you, are you cold? And I said, no, I'm in a box, but thanks for caring. So, <laughs> but it, it, it was, it, it, 95, you know, when you look at the history of the University of Montana in, in total, and especially the sports, it, it, was, it was like uh, 75 with basketball when we made the run in the Final Four, and no one expected you to. And with 39 seconds left, I, I'm pretty sure it was 39 because I, I just I thought I was going to faint. You know, we just we're ahead. They have the ball. What's going to happen? Are they going to take it away from us? And I, I'm always impressed with the student athletes because they want that challenge. You know, a lot of people just shy away. It's like, oh God, just let me get by this. And they were like, bring it on because we are the Grizzlies and we will defend that. And they did. And it, it changed the attitude. And I also was the lobbyist for the University of Montana, but the university system in the state legislature at that time, and uh, worked with them. And we took back um, Monty, 
took him uh, back and in sub in 2001 again when we won the championship and you know it was a big deal because uh, the legislative sessions were were then and it was a lot of fun to showcase that and especially because Montana State uh, University tended to, at the time to get more attention had in the 70s and early 80s but with uh, that had changed. It was a lot of fun to say, hey, we're the greatest, we've arrived, and we'll be here for a while. Well, Bill, this has been this has been a world of fun. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you fun. might be the only man that can uh, actually recollect what happened over that 24 hours <laughs> as a result of having to... $65 a beer. Anybody can remember anything. There's a lot of stories that are going to be very apocryphal in nature coming from people who aren't necessarily lying, but also perhaps don't have the clarity that you have with it. So we appreciate uh, that. This has been a, an absolute blast to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us on this podcast. Well, thank you for the opportunity and it it has been fun to think back and and go back and think of the people we saw and and how we got there and what everyone did to make it happen and so thank the fans of uh, the grizzly fans thank the student athletes the coaches the administrators and the community of missoula as far as as, and wide as it goes Uh, it you know the missoula community reaches both coasts it's international because once you're in missoula you guys live here you know there's something really nice and unique about Missoula. And when you travel, people say, oh, Missoula, I was there once, I loved it. And uh, they and all those people were rooting for the Grizz. And it, it made a difference, it was, it was magical, it was a lot of fun, and it was one of the highlights of my 37 years at the university, for sure. Thank you for listening to Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions. This episode featuring Bill Johnston, a University of Montana employee for almost 40 years and a pivotal member of the campus community, is proudly presented by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Bill Johnston, he is the community outreach leader at First Security Bank. Been working there for a couple of years ever since retiring from the University of Montana. And he kind of encompasses what First Security Bank is all about. Friendly, neighborly feel. They can take care of all your banking needs. If you want to know your banker, have a good relationship, relationship with your banker, be friends with your banker, you want your money enhanced, you can trust. First Security Bank of Missoula, they've been proud supporters of University of Montana Athletics for decades. Grizz Greats also presented by Blackfoot Communications. The world is ever evolving, telecommunications becoming huge, a lot of people are working from home, a lot of people need a network that is connected to their work office as well as their home office, anything like that, Blackfoot can take care of you. They're experts when it comes to anything that has to do with business and communications, and they are on the forefront of supporting podcasts just like this one, which is so important when it comes to expressing the oral history of our communities and promoting discourse and good feelings with our neighbors. Blackfoot Communications, proud supporter of University of Montana Athletics. Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions is a 25-part podcast series that will continue, so be sure to check in at grizzgreats.com, 1029ESPN.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.